special opportunity to hear this morning from one of our Reform University Fellowship Campus ministers. Um, Dave was just praying for those guys a, a moment ago. I think it's, it's, you would have to agree it's not much of a stretch to say that to have missionaries on college campuses uh, around the United States and really internationally as well is uh, certainly a strategic thing uh, when you consider um, what the stakes are and where those folks are heading off it uh, to. Uh, so to invest uh, attention and energy in that way is certainly a, a wise thing to do. Um, Reform University Fellowship, those of you who aren't familiar with what that is, RUF, as we fondly refer to it around here all the time, is, there are a lot of great campus ministers out there. RUF is, is unique in, in at least these uh, couple respects. Um, these are campus ministers. They are seminary-trained, licensed, and ordained pastors who are serving as missionaries on that mission field on a particular college campus. And in our presbytery, the Nashville Presbytery, we have a handful of them spread around a geographic region, uh, several different schools. Again, Dave was praying over that list just a little while ago. Gavin Breeden, Gavin, why don't you start making your way up here, is uh, there at Tennessee Tech in Cookville. It's been a few here a few times already. Glad that you're back, and we are really glad uh, to hear from you this morning. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, thank you so much, uh, as Richard just said, for, for having me back. Um, it's wonderful to be with you guys again. Um, I'm starting now my fourth semester at Tennessee Tech doing RUF and really loving it, enjoying it, and the Lord is at work there, and we're excited to see what he's doing. And um, I'm just so thankful for churches like Christ Pres, Clarksville, that love RUF, that support and pray for RUF regularly. I'm, I'm always so encouraged when I come here and you guys are praying for the RUF campus ministers and RUF ministries. I'm also so thankful for a church that cares so much about RUF that you brought an RUF to your own town, your own city, uh, to Austin P. I'm so thankful. If I can be so bold as to speak on behalf of RUF, they did not authorize me or give me permission, but I'm so thankful for Austin and Anna Caroline and for, you know, once a quarter I get to hear an update at our campus ministry meetings in Nashville. I get to hear an update about what God is doing um, at Austin P. And, and here in Clarksville. So I'm so encouraged about the work that's going on here, even in your own backyard. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm just going to set the scene a little bit before, as you're turning there. <coughs> You'll remember that King Saul, who was king of Israel, uh, that he and his son Jonathan died in battle at the end of, of 1 Samuel. David is now the king over Israel. And God has just made a, a tremendously important covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So just a couple chapters before our passage this morning. Um, <clears throat> it's called the Davidic Covenant, right? And, and this is a promise that God is going to establish this eternal kingdom for David. And it's a promise that's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 8 goes over a few victories that David has. And then we get to chapter 9, this sort of small story um, about David uh, meeting with someone, a, a descendant of Saul, a descendant of Jonathan. So, with that, let me read this for us this morning. This is God's word, 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, 
the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again and ask him for his help this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, um, as we read this story this morning about mercy, about David extending mercy to Mephibosheth, about we think as we're going to think about how you have extended mercy to David and how you've extended mercy to us, we ask this morning that you would be merciful, that you would help us and guide us in this passage, that you would teach us from it that your spirit would illuminate it for us, uh, that we would see the Lord Jesus this morning and be transformed and be changed by what we see. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> now, a few years ago, a movie came out, a musical called Les Mis. Perhaps you saw that, right? It, it was, it's adapted from the, the stage, the Broadway play of the same title, Les Mis. Maybe you saw that as well, if you've you know, been lucky. Uh, or maybe if you're really brave, maybe you've read the 1,000-plus page novel that it's all based on by Victor Hugo. Um, but if you're, if you're familiar with the story, the way the story begins has always been really fascinating to me. It's about a man named Jean Valjean who uh, is arrested for stealing a piece of bread because he's hungry. Stealing bread, gets arrested. He spends 19 years in a labor camp doing hard labor in prison, essentially, uh, for stealing a piece of bread. He's finally, finally released from prison. He's marked as an ex-con. He has very difficult difficulty finding a place to stay, anyone to take him in, finding a job, except there's a priest that one night takes him in to the church, takes him into the manse there, and lets him stay the night. And during the night, perhaps Jean Valjean is thinking about his options and how limited they are. He decides to steal this very nice silverware you know, from the manse, from this church. Um, he takes the silverware, puts it in a bag, and leaves. And he's, he's caught by a few police officers shortly thereafter, and they find him with this silverware, and he's kind of a bum, you know, and they're like, what is this? What's, what's going on here? And he says, oh, the, the priest gave it to me. He gave this to me as a gift. Of course, they don't believe his story, and so they go back to the church, wake the priest up, and <clears throat> the priest now realizes, you know, if he tells the truth, that, that Jean Valjean is going to go back to prison for a very long time. And so, you know, and, and, and on the moment, on the fly there, uh, the priest says, yes, I did. he's telling the truth. I did give him the silverware. And 
John, you, you, forgot the, you forgot the candlesticks, man. You're supposed to take the candlesticks as well, and you forgot those. And so the police still a little suspicious was still a little suspicious, but there's nothing they can do, so they leave. And um, you know, as you as you may know, the story goes on, and, and Jean Valjean is really transformed in this moment. This is a turning point in his life. Um, the story picks up years later. He, he's a, a successful man, but also a man of great character, a man of virtue, a man who is merciful and kind to others. And what Victor Hugo, the author of the story, is trying to show us is that mercy has the power to transform. Mercy has the power to transform people, to change people. You know, years of prison didn't transform Jean Valjean in this story, uh, but the mercy of this priest did. Um, and this story is showing us that, that people who receive mercy will often become people who show mercy to others. That people who receive grace and love will become people who are able then to show grace and love to others. And this is what we see in the teaching of Jesus as he's with his, in his last night with his disciples as he's spending time with them in John chapter 13 and 15. In both those chapters, he tells his disciples, as I have loved you, so you love one another. You know, Jesus' love, as he has loved his disciples, has, has opened their hearts, enabled them to love one another in that way. When we are recipients of God's love, of God's mercy, um, it, it prepares us, it equips us to show that sort of love to others. It also, it should drive us, it motivates us, it pushes us, to love others. And that's exactly what we see happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. This morning we're going to consider how God's mercy molds us and shapes us to be into being merciful people. So we have three points this morning, I think in your in your outline there. The motivation for mercy, the recipient of mercy, the extent of mercy. So our first point, the motivation for mercy. In other words, why do we show mercy? Why are we why should we show mercy? Why should we be compelled to show mercy? And here in the story we see David is seeking to love. He's seeking to show kindness, show mercy to a descendant of Saul, a descendant of Jonathan. We see that in verse 1. What's motivating David to do this? Well, there's two things. One is mercy he's received from Jonathan, and two, mercy he's received from God. So first, he's remembering his relationship with Jonathan. As you remember, David and Jonathan had a very close, a very tight, and even tender friendship. Um, and listen to what David says in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, right as he hears about Jonathan's death. He, he, he see, he, this is like a song that he writes and sings. He says, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, frankly, you know, maybe that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? Maybe um, we're not used to hearing men talk about their friendships in those terms exactly. Um, and, you know, certainly people have come to this passage uh, with certain motivations, perhaps looking for something romantic or sexual between Jonathan and David, but there's really no evidence uh, in the Bible of anything like that. And the fact that we have trouble sort of imagining two men having a, a close and tender friendship perhaps says more about us and here in the West and our views about male friendship than it says about Jonathan and David. Uh, but remember, Jonathan is the king's son. Right? He is King Saul's son. He is <clears throat> next in line to be king. But um, as Saul is disqualified from being king, and God selects David to be the next king, uh, and then once Jonathan realizes this, that God has made David the next king, David has been anointed to be the next king, uh, they make this covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 17. Now, think about this. Jonathan, this is his kingdom to lose. This is his throne to lose. Uh, and, and yet, and he knows about a plot, about a plan that his father has 
to wipe out David, right? Saul is seeking to kill David, and Jonathan would be on the throne. But Jonathan instead, uh, believing in God's promises, believing in God's plan, Jonathan has mercy on David. He tells David about this plan for his, his great love, his great loyalty to David. And here's part of the covenant that they make in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David is motivated here by the great mercy that Jonathan has shown to him, the great love that Jonathan has shown to David in their friendship. Um, and so David is, is motivated by that. Hey, is there anyone left of the household of Saul? Is there anyone left of Jonathan's house that I may keep this promise that I made to my friend? But there's another motivation at work here, and an even more powerful motivation, I would argue. David wants to show love because he has been shown love by God. Um, it might seem, in, uh, just sort of a casual reading of the passage, that Jonathan is the greater motivation here. He mentions Jonathan a couple times. I'm doing this for Jonathan's sake. But, um, but look with me at verse 3. It says, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness, that I may show the kindness of God to him? David wants to show someone the kindness of God. Why is that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Two chapters before this, in 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant. And we find this tremendously important event as God is making this covenant with David, as God is promising to establish David's kingdom forever. Many of those promises fulfilled in David's son Solomon. Many of those promises fulfilled in Jesus. But what we see is when God makes covenants in the Old Testament with people, there's almost always talk. Your translation may say loving kindness, or your translation may say steadfast love. But the, the word that's the Hebrew word there is chesed, okay? Chesed. It's a fun word to say. You can practice it later this afternoon. Uh, but that word is used all over the Old Testament to talk about this covenant love that God has for his people. This steadfast love that doesn't waver, that doesn't change, this, this loving kindness that God has. It's used in 2 Samuel 7, and that same word is used here in Chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 3, as David is talking about, I want to show the kindness of God to someone. He's talking about the steadfast love, this covenant love of God, the covenant love that God shows to his people. He's saying, I want to show someone that kind of love. And the only way you can show someone that kind of love is if you've received it. If you've received it from the Lord God, if you've experienced what that steadfast love is like from God, you can show that to other people. Um, and so David's motive is very clear. He's been shown unbelievably, unbelievable steadfast love, loving kindness from God. And this covenant it has molded him. It has changed him. It has made him want to show that same love, the kindness of God, the steadfast love of God, to show that to someone else. Just as the mercy of this priest molds and changes Jean Valjean, in even more and more in a greater way, we see that the love of God has done the same thing. In the life of David, he has been shown steadfast love, and now he's seeking the opportunity to show that steadfast love to others, to another person. Uh, certainly, as I said, David's friendship and promise to Jonathan is a big factor here, but notice that he doesn't say, I want to show the kindness of Jonathan. I want to repay the kindness of Jonathan. He says, I want to show the kindness of God. I want to show someone from Saul's house, from Jonathan's house, 
the kindness of God. Now perhaps as we look at our own hearts this morning, maybe we don't see a desire like that, right? A, a desire to show the steadfast love of God to, to others, to another person. And maybe there could be a lot of reasons for that. We won't go into all of them, but maybe one possible reason that we don't feel a desire like that, maybe, maybe because our hearts haven't been gripped by the mercy of God. Maybe we don't realize the great mercy, the great loving kindness that God has offered to us, that God has given to sinners like us in the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe our lack of love for others is revealing that, that we don't clearly see the great mercy of God for us in the cross of the Lord Jesus. So David is motivated to show love by the mercy of Jonathan, but even more so by the mercy he's received from God. So second, our second point this morning is the recipient of mercy. Who is David showing mercy to, and, and to whom are we to show mercy in our lives? Well, David wants to show mercy and steadfast love to someone from the house of Saul. So he calls Ziba, who had been a servant of Saul, and David says, look, is there anyone left? Is there anybody still around? Most of Saul's sons have been killed in battle. There's not many left. He says, is there anyone, is, there's really no one left. Is there anyone left from the previous king, um, his family? And Ziba says, yeah, there's one guy. Um, his name is Mephibosheth, which the, the only hard part about this sermon is saying Mephibosheth like 30 times. So if I stumble over it, please uh, have mercy on me. Uh, and he says, there's this guy, Mephibosheth, he's crippled in both of his feet. David says, okay, bring him to me. Um, now, we maybe not realize how unusual this is because, uh, as, as was mentioned earlier in the service, yes, this weekend was the inauguration. And Regardless of what you think of the parties involved, I think one of the most beautiful things about our government and our and democracy is this peaceful transfer of power, right? That power is transferred without bloodshed, without coups, without war. Uh, that is a beautiful thing that we can celebrate and be thankful for. It was not often that way in the, in the ancient kingdoms of the world. Um, and even in this case, even though you know, David had been rightly appointed to this throne by God, Something that would sometimes happen in the ancient world is when you became king, when you took the throne, if a new family took the throne, one of the first things you might do is wipe out all the living relatives of the previous dynasty, the previous family, because you don't want them to you know, be plotting and scheming ways to sort of take back the throne. And so you know, it was a, it was a, in the ancient world, that was something that was not unusual to, to kill the descendants of the previous king uh, when you took the throne. Uh, but that's not what we see happening in here. And this, is, this should be shocking to us when we read this passage. Um, you know, culturally speaking, in that day and age, Mephibosheth should have been considered like an enemy of David, right? He's the grandson of the previous king. Uh, the culture, that society would have sort of had that view that he's an enemy. Uh, Mephibosheth knows this, and we sort of see that in how he acts when he comes before, when he comes into David's presence. In verse 6, it says he comes into David's presence, he falls on his face, right, to pay homage to David. Now think of how difficult that would have been for Mephibosheth, just physically, as a person who was crippled in his feet, to lower himself to the ground. You know, it would have probably been a very awkward spectacle to see, right? It would have been, a, it would have been something that would have been time-consuming, and it would have been, you know, perhaps even humiliating for him as he sort of awkwardly lowers himself to the floor, to the ground there. Mephibosheth is probably fearing for his life, knowing that he could be killed right on the spot here by King David because of his relationship, because he's Saul's grandson. 
But that's not what David does. Instead, David lavishes mercy upon him. He shows him the steadfast love of God. And we'll talk specifically about what that is and what that looks like um, in our third point in a moment. But what do, we, what do we learn from this? Well, a couple things. One, first, I think we see in this passage that we are called, as people who've received the steadfast love of God, we're called to show that the kindness of God to people who should be our enemies. We're called to show the kindness of God to people who could easily be labeled as our enemies. Um, everything in David's day would be saying, Mephibosheth has got to go, right? But David shows him kindness. And there are people in your life and in my life that maybe on the surface, you know, it feels like or it seems like they should be our enemies. Uh, maybe it's that neighbor, something as small as that neighbor who always mows over onto your side of the property line and, and it drives you insane, okay? It drives you crazy. You can tell. I used to have a neighbor like this. Um, maybe it's that coworker who, who's, you know, you get the sense they're kind of bad-mouthing you when you're not around. Maybe that's someone that feels like they're probably, they're an enemy to you. Um, or maybe it's just someone, you know, there's someone you interact with at work or in your neighborhood or at school, someone you just don't like, uh, and they feel like just, you know, an enemy, just someone who's in opposition to you. Um, another way we can think about this, you know, if you've been keeping up with the news lately, um, Seems to be a little tension in our nation currently, uh, you know, and it feels easier than ever to sort of look around, look around you, and identify people as sort of friend or foe. Seems very easy right now to sort of say, "Oh, well, you're you believe this, or you support this, or you're on this side or that side." It feels very easy now to sort of I just lump people in a category and say, "Well, I'm opposed to you, right? You're my enemy because you believe this, you support this, you're you're involved with this." It's, it's very tempting, I think, very easy for us to sort of throw people in these buckets, right? You're my friend. You're my foe. You're my enemy. But what that means for us as Christians is that right now in a, in a very tense, maybe you know, very tensely divided nation, we have a lot of opportunities to show the loving kindness of God to others. We have a lot of opportunities to show the kindness of God to people who it would be very easy to label as our enemies. Um, and perhaps, you know, those are the people, those people in your life perhaps that, that, that would fall into these categories. And perhaps those are the people that you and I are being called to show the mercy and kindness of God to. And on paper, it might not even make sense. Like, why would I ever want to show kindness to him? Or why would I want to show kindness, the kindness of God to her? You know, why would I ever want to do that? But Jesus himself teaches us, right, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to love our enemies, we're to pray for those who persecute us. Not in a self-righteous way, but in a genuine way. In a, in a way that in which we're genuinely loving and praying for them. And that's where we really see, and that's where we can really sort of display to the world around us the transformative power of the gospel, the transformative power of the mercy and loving kindness of God, that it opens up our hearts, that it, it pushes us, it drives us to love people who are very different from us, to love people who, you know, the culture is telling us that we're, you know, these, if you're in this group or that group, you're enemies. This is, this is who you should be opposed to. Um, but it really shows and displays the loving kindness of God when we can sort of see past those categories and see past, move past those barriers and show the kindness of God to others. Secondly, we see here that we're called to show the loving kindness of God to people who can't really give us anything back in return, right? Mephibosheth, the passage reminds us twice that he is crippled in both of his feet. 
Now, this, it's a difficult thing today if you're, you know, if you were crippled in your feet or if you were, you know, a, a paraplegic, quadriplegic, that would be a difficult thing to endure today, but you can still live a fairly normal life and do most normal things. But in those days, it would have been extremely difficult. It would have been very, very difficult uh, to get around, to survive, to do anything. And it boils down to this. Mephibosheth was never really going to be useful to David. He was never, ever going to be able to really pay back anything or serve him in any way, you know, give him anything useful. Uh, there's, never, there's no way he was going to be able to pay him back for this kindness. Um, and that's how sometimes we perhaps think about things in that way. We think about, you know, it would be good to, there's people in our lives who think, man, it would be good to be friends with that guy. That could, be, that could be really good for my business if I form a friendship with this guy over here or this woman over here. That might be really helpful to me or beneficial to me. And it's, it's tempting for us sometimes to think about people in terms of what they can do for us, right? I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. Um, but but the, the love, the steadfast love of God pushes us past that. And, and it helps us to uh, see that we're called to love people who can't, even, who can't do anything back for us, who can't give us anything in return. We're called to love people who may not even say thank you, right? And, and that's okay. Like, that's, the loving, that's the loving kindness of God. Um, and that's what it will look like in our lives, loving people, showing mercy and kindness and uh, the steadfast love of God to people um, who can't give us anything back in return, who have nothing really to offer us. But we're doing it because we have been the beneficiaries. We've been the recipients of God's wonderful steadfast love to us. Finally, our third point here, the extent of mercy, or how are we to show mercy? To what degree are we to show mercy? Right now in my house, we have three small children. I saw, my, I saw their names in the, in the bulletin there. That was so Wonderful to see that you guys are praying for my children and even know their names. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, but we have a five-year-old girl, a three-year-old boy, and a one-year-old girl. And so every mealtime turns into like this great negotiation, okay? Um, the one-year-old is actually amazing. She eats everything. She is like a bottomless pit, which is really nice. Uh, but the five-year-old and the three-year-old, it's like, you know, okay, clean your plate. Well, what does a clean your plate mean, Dad? Is that, you mean three more bites? Two more bites? Five more bites? No. How many bites it takes to clean your plate? That's what I mean, okay? But every, every mealtime turns into this negotiation where my kids are like, what's the bare minimum that I can eat? What's the bare minimum that I can do and still get, you know, dessert, okay? Um, and that's what they're going to do, the bare minimum. And I see that sometimes in my students. Um, I, I was the same way as a college student. You know, sometimes I'll hear my students talking about class, and they'll say, all right, <clears throat> you know, I can... <clears throat> I can make a 60 on the final and still get a B in the class. You know, like that—that's my goal. Is, is you know the bare minimum. Like, what's the bare minimum I can do to make that B or to make that A? Uh, and maybe this morning, maybe that's how where we are. Maybe we're sitting here, we think, okay, so showing the loving kindness of God to others—that's something I need to do. All right, so what's maybe we wouldn't say it out loud like this, but maybe we're thinking deep down, what's the bare minimum I can do, and I'll be able to check that box. What, what's what's the bare minimum? Uh, what kind of time commitment are we talking about here in showing the steadfast love of God? Um, well, let's look at how far David goes in showing the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. As he's, you know, he could have just said, you know what, David could have just said, hey, Mephibosheth, thanks for coming by. Just want you to know I promised your dad I'm not going to kill you, okay? And here's a, here's a lovely gift basket, and, you know, be on your way. Thanks for coming by. Take care. Have a nice life. David could have done that and technically would have been keeping his promise, right? Not going to, you know, I'm going to be kind to the, the, the household, the descendants of, of Jonathan. But that's not what, what David does. Um, 
David doesn't just do the bare minimum, right? It, it, what does it look like when he shows mercy to Mephibosheth? It's radical, right? First of all, he says, look, everything that belonged to Saul, everything that belonged to your family, uh, to, your, to your grandfather's family, that I'm going to give all that to you. That's all of yours now, right? And, and he says, I'm even going to give you these servants, all these servants that should technically be David's now. He says, I'm going to give these servants. They're going to work the land for you. They're going to take care of the property for you, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, but David even goes a step further, and he says, Mephibosheth will always eat. You, Mephibosheth, will always eat at my table. You will eat in my house with my sons from now until you die. And we know this is a big deal because the writer of 2 Samuel tells us that four times between verses 7 and 13. Four times the writer tells us that Mephibosheth is going to eat at the king's table. Like, it's, it's like that, it's that big of a deal. He's like, did you, did you hear this? Did you get this? Mephibosheth is going to be eating at David's table, like one of his sons. Um, what we're seeing here is an adoption, right? David is saying, you're going to be with my sons. You're going to eat at my table. This man should have been David's enemy, right? He, he has nothing that he can really give back or do for David, but David adopts him, right? David bestows on him this great honor of sitting at the king's table. Always. And David says, for the rest of your life, you'll be taken care of. I'll be responsible for you. I will not cast you out. And I think this kind of gets at why adoption, historically and even till t- even today as well, why adoption is such a big deal for Christians. Because it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. You know, they, they, they say in, in ancient, in the Roman Empire, uh, that ch- when children were unwanted, often they would just be taken outside of town and sort of thrown babies living babies, taken outside of town, thrown into the trash heap, uh, just left to die in the elements. And Christians would go out to the, you know, the city dump and look for these children, look for these babies, and take them home and raise them. Um, what, why would, what would motivate someone to do something like that, to take on this huge burden of raising a child forever? forever? It's someone who has received the steadfast love of God. Someone who has received the loving kindness of God and someone who realizes that what I've received through Jesus is adoption. And now my heart wants to give adoption. I want to give that same love, that same adoption that I've received, I want to give that to someone else. That's what the loving kindness of God looks like. And this is what chesed looks like, right? It involves freely giving, sacrificially giving to others. David is showing us that this is the way that God has loved him, right? This is how he's going to love Mephibosheth. And what effect does this have on Mephibosheth? Look at verse 8, right? It just fills him with humility. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Like he's, he's just blown away. Why in the world would you do this for me? Why in the world would you show this level of, of mercy, this level of, of loving kindness to me? You just think about Mephibosheth's life. We read earlier in 2 Samuel in chapter 4 like that Mephibosheth, is when he's a boy, he's a little boy, and he's with his nurse, and his nurse drops him, and that's how he becomes crippled in his feet. You know, Think about his father and grandfather die in battle. All of his family is wiped out. Wherever he goes, he's kind of a burden for people. Um, he probably feels unwanted and, and useless. But here David is saying, Mephibosheth, I want you to come and eat at my table. I want you to come and eat with my sons. That is what God is offering to you and to me in the gospel. 
We were unwanted and cast out. We were sinners. We were enemies of God, right? And he says, I want you to come and sit at my table. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. So what does that mean for us? Well, showing the kindness of God is something that, that costs us, right? It's something that's going to cost, it's going to require time, it's going to require money, it's going to require energy, it's going to cost us our comfort, it's going to cut into our free time, it's going to pull us out of our comfort zone as we love people who are very different from us, as we love people who may be easy to call our enemies, right? Maybe for you it's um, that single mother who lives in your neighborhood, and you know she's having a hard time. Uh, maybe for you it's, it's the elderly relative that you know needs help, and you can provide help. Uh, maybe for you it's that person that is at school or at work or whatever, someone who has just totally different beliefs, religious beliefs, political beliefs from you, and here's a chance for you to sh- extend mercy to them, to show loving kindness to them. Our measurement for showing mercy is not, okay, what's the bare minimum I can show and check this box? Our measurement, rather, is how can I show the mercy to others that I have received from God? How can I show that level of mercy? Mercy that I've received from God, how can I show that to others? How can I show the radical loving kindness of God to the people that God has placed in my life right now? Um, and I don't know what that would look like in your life, necessarily. Okay, That might look different for a lot of us in here. Um, but pray that God would, that he would make that clear to you, that he would show that to you, that he would open your heart and your eyes to the needs around you in your church, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, even in your own home, perhaps. How can you show the loving kindness of God to the people that you interact with each day? And y'all, this is, this is the good news of the gospel, that... As great as, as David, as, as, as wonderfully as he loves and shows mercy to Mephibosheth here, Jesus' Jesus's kindness to you is far, far greater. David's kindness doesn't, it pales in comparison to the kindness of the Lord Jesus to you and to me. Because Jesus loves us with a perfect love, a love that can change hearts, a love that transforms people, a love that has changed the world. Jesus loves us with a love that has changed the world. It's a love that is still changing the world, a love that will change the world. That's the love of Christ. The Bible says, as I just mentioned, that we were enemies of God, and yet God came to us. He, he could have walked away after the Garden of Eden, and he would have been totally justified in doing so. But he didn't do that. He came to us. He, came to, he covered Adam and Eve with, with, um, with animal uh, skins, right? He covered their shame and their sin. He offers the same thing for us in the Lord Jesus. And he knows that we're not always going to be faithful. He knows that we're going to go astray. As the old hymn puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, you know, he knows that we're going to do that. And yet he still came to us. We were just like Mephibosheth, unwanted, useless. Uh, There's nothing really attractive about us. But God says to us, you will have a seat at my table, always. I will adopt you. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. Those, those are the things that are offered to us in the gospel, the promises offered to us in the Lord Jesus. These are the blessings that are ours when we rest in Christ, experiencing the kindness of God in the gospel. And it should fill us with a desire to show that same kindness to others. We have been lavished with a loving kindness this loving kindness of God. And Jesus says to us, you go and do likewise.
As I have loved you, so you love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we it's, it's hard for us to even fathom and realize the level of mercy, the level of, of kindness, of love that you have shown to us and, and given to us. But Lord, we pray that this morning that you would help us to understand the kindness offered to us in Jesus and in the gospel. Maybe for the very first time we would understand that this morning. Help us to understand that and help us help that, that realization, that understanding, help that to drive us to love others. Help us to, help us to see the needs around us, see the, the ways that in which we can show the steadfast love of God, even to people uh, who we would consider our enemies. Give us the eyes and the heart to do that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.